Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today, I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Dr. Todd Davenport, who's Professor and Program Director in the Department of Physical Therapy in the Thomas uh, Long School of Pharmacy and Health Sciences at the University of the Pacifics in Stockton, California. Welcome, Dr. Davenport. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Today we're going to talk about a perspective that he and his colleagues have published in PTJ. It's entitled Navigating the Intersection between persistent pain and the opioid crisis, population health perspectives for physical therapy. I really enjoyed your perspective, Todd, and I I find it's very timely, and um, it's raised a lot of thoughts in my mind. Let me start by asking you to comment on your statement in your perspective that you believe that current efforts by professional organizations such as APTA have been not as successful as they need to be to emphasize the roles that PTs can play in public health efforts around the opioid use disorder um, epidemic. What should organizations like APTA be doing in your view? Well, thanks for the question, and, and let me start by saying that APTA has has plenty to share and, and already has shared plenty since about 2016. And actually, for an overview, I'd encourage our listeners to check out the PT in Motion article from the 30th of April 2019 for an overview of those efforts. Um, you know, the APTA has developed a cross-disciplinary playbook on opioid stewardship. They've partnered with the, the National Quality Forum to do that. APTA has already, uh, has already created the, the hashtag Choose PT Opioid Awareness Campaign. Uh, they've created a white paper. They've hosted social media events. They've sponsored a media tour. And they've established an opioid and pain management resource on PT Now. So it's, it's, it's clear that, that APTA has already shared a, a trove of, of information, informative and, and, and thoughtful materials for the public and for clinicians. So what more is there to do? Um, well, we commonly talk about the opioid crisis as a public health issue, which, which I agree it is. And we even use unconsciously the language of infectious disease epidemiology to describe its scope as an epidemic. But our approach and how to think and act on this crisis has not yet really developed the characteristics of, of population health thinking. So I'd, I'd say the major contribution of this paper uh, was to apply the disease prevention model to opioid use disorder. Uh, and I think that, that can help organize our thinking and our actions in responding to the opioid crisis to uh, help us move a little closer to our mission of building communities and realizing our vision of societal transformation. In your perspective, you note that PTs should be frontline practitioners in the opioid crisis, and it really gave me some pause and you you go on to say that it's relatively common for people to begin a pattern of illicit opioid use through the gateway of opioids commonly prescribed for legitimate medical reasons. Given that, it struck me that aren't physicians the most logical frontline professionals that should be taking the lead on this issue? Why do you think PTs? 
You know, it's tempting to assign sole responsibility to our physician's colleagues uh, to evaluate for the presence of, you know, of opioid use disorder because, as you point out, they're the prescriber. Uh, but the thing is that I think we've been on the front line for years without acknowledging it. And, and we're positioned there, you know, not so much because of what I think, but because we work with people who are in pain. And these folks who are in pain commonly consume opioid medications as one result of that pain. Uh, even back in 1999, Boisenault found that over a quarter of patients had a prescription for narcotics in outpatient physical therapy practice. So, you know, the risk for, for opioid addictions in the average physical therapy outpatient waiting room is potentially higher than out in the general community. Uh, this is really a longstanding issue for us that I hope that, you know, this paper surfaces and that we can discuss more specifically as maybe one as one result. But, you know, you know, instead of thinking of, you know, the physician as the you know, the, the person who has sole responsibility, I wonder if we can use the same lens to justify how we evaluate patients and clients for the need for medical referral. Um, you know, I, I think we can provide support to our physician and colle physician colleagues who've been the subject of a lot of conversation as it relates to prescribing limits uh, and other measures that have stig stigmatized both physicians uh, and people who take opioids. And it's a tough situation for, for both our patients and our physician colleagues. Um, we PTs still frequently have more follow-up with patients so we can observe for early signs of disorder use of opioids. Uh, we can raise those concerns as warranted, but only if we have the relevant information that empowers us to do that. Um, so, you know, to me, evaluating for a potential opioid use disorder is part of what it means to be a member of a team, uh, a team that provides each other with mutual support uh, in pursuit of the best possible outcome with and for our patients. That makes a lot of sense, and, and so let's talk about the competencies that PTs would need if we're really going to be successful in screening for opioid use disorder among our patients. What are some of the key competencies that you think we should be exercising? Well, you know, I think I think one of the first decisions a physical therapist has to make is is whether physical therapy is appropriate for their patient or whether a referral is required or, or whether a treatment and referral are best, and, and this is a decision that, you know, physical therapists make every day with every patient at every encounter. Um, and so this decision, you know, may also include suspected opioid use disorder, and we can use criteria from the DSM-5, uh, which we lay out in the paper. Um, and so these are available criteria. Uh, they, are, they are standardized criteria that can be used across disciplines, and so really you know, physical therapy can align itself with other um, providers to to use the same types of, of, of criteria to help make those decisions. Um, you know, CAPTI already mandates competencies in physical therapy education for psychosocial aspects of illness and disability. Uh, and addiction is already a really common theme in many programs, and these DSM-5 criteria can be included in physical therapy curricula to help our new grads coming out become comfortable in watching for symptoms and signs, you know, potentially consistent with opioid use disorder. Um, you know, in addition, many states include special requirements for licensure that, you know, they're educational in nature and address bigger picture social issues. So, you know, for example, the state of Washington mandates HIV AIDS education to obtain a physical therapy license. So it makes me wonder if uh, state boards, the PT compact might endorse um, you know, requirements that might include evaluation for opioid use disorder, uh, you know, administration of, you know, naloxone uh, and, and other relevant topics that, 
they're really kind of at this intersection between opioid use disorder and public safety. Do you know if programs, entry-level programs, are teaching these competencies uh, in the it, U.S.? You know, it's a good, it's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that question. Uh, I think that's a, a, a definitely a, an interesting area of, of further research to try and flush out what what uh, programs are teaching with regard to the you know to the opioid crisis. It certainly seems appropriate if we're really going to be effective in helping um, address this epidemic that. Uh, it's got to come from somewhere, and it seems like that would be a natural place to, to, to start. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I enjoyed how you organized your your recommendations uh, using kind of a classic public health model of primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. And uh, as someone with a public health background, that certainly resonated with me. And... Um, I'd like to talk about each of those a little bit, if we could. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Tertiary strikes me as probably the most comfortable area for physical therapists because it seems very much in the mainstream of what we do. And in particular, you talked about um, some of the common cognitive and behavioral comorbidities that can exacerbate and perpetuate opioid use disorder. What do you see as some of the key examples of evidence-based treatments that PT should be providing these patients? Uh, well, in the tertiary setting, it's, it's uh, the treatment setting for opioid use disorder that's been confirmed and, you know, folks who are in recovery is unique because people come in regularly for medication-assisted treatment and, and often they come in daily. Uh, and this raises the, the really unique possibility of high-touch settings for physical therapists to treat patients individually or in groups as part of that multidisciplinary care team uh, involving um, addiction specialists, uh, social workers, psychologists, and so forth. Um, and, and I think there's big potential for research and practice in this specific practice area, uh, which, is, which is thin uh, at this point. The, there was a I, I missed it, but there was a, an excellent um, presentation, from what I understand, at APTA Next in 2018 by by Bishop uh, Shaconis and, and Rashwan that, that got beyond Choose PT, uh, and they shared some really great information. Uh, and again, this was summarized in, in the July 2nd, 2018 article in, in PT in Motion. Um, but, you know, recent systematic reviews suggest that, you know, the evidence base behind explaining pain, you know, therapeutic neuroscience education techniques is promising. Not perfect, uh, what is. Um, but, you know, part of the treatments PTs could provide in this setting should involve an, an approach to therapeutic neuroscience education. Um, you know, there's a, uh, been a couple of recent systematic re uh, reviews, Cochrane reviews, that suggest therapeutic exercise may have benefits to improve uh, physical and and psychological functioning in people with persistent pain. So, you know, physical therapists can create programs of non-threatening uh, therapeutic movements to also help. You know, the hope, um, you know, of course, is that these evidence-based treatments will improve adherence uh, to the overall addictions management program. Uh, and I think that's, again, where an additional promising area of research for, for physical therapy comes in. You mentioned a, a phrase that I'm not familiar with, I must admit. You talked about 
the PT plan of care should include evaluation and treatment of maladaptive threat appraisal. What is that? So, so threat appraisal is actually an idea that, that comes from protection motivation theory, which was originated, originated in the 70s, uh, based on observations of how people cope under stressful conditions. You know, under, under this theory, people are thought to protect themselves, you know, based on the perceived severity of a threatening event, you know, the perceived probability that that threatening event might come back, how vulnerable they are, and, and also, you know, the, the efficacy of, of enacting a preventive behavior. So, so it gets at this idea of self-efficacy to respond to the threatening event. So this kind of gets kind of another way to talk about um, our thoughts of, of kinesiophobia or fear avoidance. You know, I'm, I'm giving a, a really, you know, kind of high-level summary of a broad and deep area of study, but I think we do have a lot of data to suggest that people with persistent pain do demonstrate high levels of kinesiophobia. And you know, for some, you know, rather than phobias and fears, maybe what we're really talking about is disablement related to, you know, perceived threat or danger associated with pain. Uh, and I think the implication of this shift in thinking, and, and I'm not sure that I'm the first person to do this, is, is demonstrated by, again, therapeutic neuroscience education approaches. Uh, the, the, the corollary is that, you know, these, these are, are perceptions that may be amenable to education uh, and, and, and more of a motivational, you know, treatable construct, you know, rather than sort of thinking about this as a static phobia. Um, so, you know, our ability to address threat, you know, to, to give feedback about actual outcomes of painful events, uh, to improve self-efficacy, you know, related to, to movement and function becomes a really important competency uh, to treat the patient with persistent pain. It seems uh, like a really important area. Do you teach that in your program? You know, we we do a little bit we do a little bit of that. Um, one of the things that we're we're playing a lot more with, uh, not not so much in the program, but uh, the my the colleagues with whom I've I've um, you know, published this work, we're we're very interested in, in trauma informed care approaches, uh, and so we're we're hopeful that that some of that work might be coming to a, a an area of the peer reviewed literature near you. <laughs> well, good. It's interesting because many of the things that you're suggesting strike me as expanding the scope of our practice, which I'm not suggesting is bad, but it does raise some challenges so that our, our professionals are skilled and equipped to handle these, uh, these areas. It kind of leads me to my next thought. When uh, you write about secondary prevention, you get into another area that uh, I'm not very familiar with, and you talk about the association of adverse childhood experiences as they relate to the development both of persistent pain and opioid use disorder. And you suggest that that is also an area that PT should be uh, looking at from an evaluation and assessment perspective. Talk a bit about why you think PT should be moving into that area. I hadn't thought about that as part of the PT's role. Sure. So, you know, we're um, you know, we're in the middle of a slow-motion mental health crisis, you know, here in the United States. And, and it's largely because of how we perceive uh, of services and how we pay for them, you know, in this country. So there are shortages of trained mental health uh, care providers uh, for, you know, that, and have been for a number of years, uh, both overall in the country, but, but in particular outside of the more affluent urban and suburban areas. Uh, I was reading a, a report, a 2016 report from the American Hospital Association that suggested that 85% of, of all rural areas in the United States are, are actually designated as shortage areas in behavioral health providers uh, by the Health Resources and Services Administration. 
Um, and, and something like half of all patients receive care for, for a psychiatric condition by their primary care provider, uh, many of whom may not have uh, fully adequate training to fulfill that role. So, so I definitely agree with the premise that other professionals, you know, they may be better equipped to evaluate and intervene for adverse childhood events, but the problem is how to access them, uh, and that's more of a structural problem. Um, yeah. And yet, you know, these, these ACEs still seem to be an important upstream predictor of a lot of the health problems that physical therapists see every day. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you you introduced me to a lot of new concepts in your piece, which is one of the reasons I really enjoyed it. Um, Thank let's you. Let's talk about another another one that came up: primordial prevention. That was a new one for me as well. <laughs> um, you contrast that to primary prevention, which I'm very familiar with, focusing on people who are susceptible in the population. Yeah. Whereas primordial are preventive efforts applied to populations regardless of susceptibility. And, again, that's a, that's a big ask for physical it's a therapists. Big ask. Could you talk about that? It is. Could, uh, could you talk a bit about uh, some of the uh, efforts that you think PTs could be engaged in in this area of primordial prevention? Yeah, th thanks for the chance to do it. So, you know, to me, this is where things get fun because I've never stayed in my lane very well. Um, so, so we, clearly, we, clearly. <laughs> we raise a few, a few examples in the paper related to opioid use disorder, you know, including, including poverty, discrimination, uh, criminal justice, uh, po policies that are family friendly. Uh, we talk about mental health. Um, and so, so a lot of what we talk about is, you know, how to help our society, you know, not only become, you know, more just and equitable, but also healthier. So, so to me, primordial prevention is this general orientation to thinking about health in all policies, health in all processes, and that's to paraphrase uh, the CDC and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, I, I mean, I'd say that probably the most accessible way for PTs and PTAs to engage in primordial prevention is advocacy. Um, you know, there are a number of, of, of PTs doing wonderful things in their communities and upstream practice and programs. Um, you know, if, if you want to see more sidewalks, to, to improve improve movement um, and improve your your adherence to your home program. You, know, you may be reaching out to folks you've never talked to before. You, know, you may be calling your city planner or city manager. You may be showing up at a city council meeting or some PTs that I'm aware of who are running for the city council. Uh, you may be getting the mayor involved. And it, it doesn't have to be big because, you know, what, what I've come to appreciate in all this is that all health is local. Uh, so, you know, everyone's needs are going to be slightly different. Um, and, and I also think we have to we have to practice talking about these issues. You know, the, the political debate skills that we've all honed on social media just won't serve our public. You know, I think since our our vision statement was revised in 2013, something like six or seven motions have come before the House of Delegates related to social issues. So it's it's really kind of a minuscule part of our agenda in terms of numbers. But these are the motions that tend to get the most discussion on the hub uh, and out on social media and on the floor of the house. So, and I, and I think part of it's because we don't have much of a plan yet for how social advocacy dovetails into our usual comfort level of advocating for our profession. Um, and, and before we, you know, draw a false dichotomy between social and professional advocacy, I'd like to just point out it's all professional advocacy. You know, society gives us our licenses uh, to act in their benefit. So anything we do to advocate for our profession and for our patients is already some form of social advocacy. 
so I think you know in the in the manner of how to get involved you know with uh, with um, with primordial prevention I, I think you know we need a strategic plan for social advocacy that guides you know how and what we advocate for uh, it, as the APTA and, and its state level components uh, because these issues you know, they're not going to go away uh, and our role as society transformers or our, our hopeful role as society transformers I think requires that that level of participation. Well, you raise a really a large number of very thought-provoking issues in your perspective, and, and I thank you for publishing it in PTJ. I want to encourage our listeners to take a look at the perspective. It, it nicely builds on some other work that we've published in this area. And, and Dr. Davenport, I particularly want to thank you for taking the time today to talk about it with me. Thank you. I appreciate the privilege of your of your time and attention and, and for the listeners as well.